Acton. Welcome to Red Femmes. Hi, George. Welcome. What are we doing this week? We are introducing this podcast. It's called Red Femmes, as in well-read. Sounds like a play on words, though. Doesn't it sort of sound like rad? Like radical feminist? Are we radical feminists? Are we even feminists? Mm, We will get to that (laughs) shortly. (laughs) Uh, We can say right off the bat that we'll be reading texts that relate to all things women. I think the format we're going to do is we're going to read, we're going to look at one or two, depending on how long they are, contemporary, recent texts, mm-hmm. and then maybe talk about something that we've read in the past, what well, we've read again, because we're that good, <laughs> and how it relates. Awesome. Sounds fun. All right. What's the title? Economic Sex, The Fatal Flaw of Second Wave Feminism. Ooh. So we're talking about Ivan Illich, aren't we? Mm-hmm. I think that's perfect for episode one. I think you are the only other person I've met, Acton, who's actually read his collection of essays called Gender. I am totally obsessed. I know. Easy, George. <laughs> you got a plan. First things first. <laughs> okay. First things first, the section where we do lead-off Q&A. Uh, so we have two questions that are very appropriate for the first episode of this show. And they are, what does feminism mean to you? And how has that meaning changed since you were younger? All right. Well... I consider myself to be very fortunate in that I was raised in an environment that was so loving and supportive that for the most part, I was pretty oblivious to the kinds of issues that feminism has developed in response to. So, Such as? <laughs> <laughs> well, all, all my grandparents, all my parents and aunts and uncles, um, like they've all celebrated their 50th wedding anniversaries, and I grew up watching like really happy and cooperative relationships between you know between my parents and my other relatives and I had a father who always encouraged my intellectual interests and my mom stayed home with us when we were little and I remember just the wonderful feeling of coming home from school and um, having tea time with her and you know playing with her she was the kind of mom who would sing to us and do plays on words and do pillow forts with us and read to us and she, she always conveyed this sense that she wouldn't want to be anywhere else, that this was being a mom's like the best thing that happened to her. And, um, as we got older, she did go, she went back to work. Um, she's a, a musician, a pianist, but when we were older, she went, um, to work in the school system with disabled kids and she was wonderful at it. Um, but because of how I was raised, I grew up with this really deep and abiding optimism about the relationship between the sexes, about the goodness of family, the joy of being a mom, about the likelihood of being supported in whatever profession I chose. Like, I never really had any anxiety about, oh, I might want to do something and I wouldn't be able to because I'm a woman. Like, that literally never occurred to me. And I also just had all these assumptions that I'd be able to marry a good man and we'd stay married and it would be fine. It'd be great. <laughs> and so I, I was really lucky. I, I was able to marry my best friend when I was 20. And now my marriage is older than I was when I entered into it. That's awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> I've got four kids whom I love. I get to do work that I love that fits in really seamlessly with being a wife and a mother and a homeschooler. And so in a sense, I, I kind of feel like a poster child of beating the odds that, you know, that my life is kind of an example of how a modern woman can, like, if, if everything goes right, like, externally speaking, it can be great. <laughs> and so I feel really lucky. I, I guess that's what privilege is. So yeah, I'm checking my privilege. I totally, I was like, yep, she's doing that's her what I gotta do. <laughs> she's getting her bonafides. So I'm getting that other way. Don't hate me because I'm fortunate. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Thank you. So, so I come to feminism from a place that's incredibly hopeful, probably idealistic, and really family-friendly. So it's been very eye-opening, the older that I get and the more that I read, to learn what life is like for women who have not been blessed with really good men throughout their lives, who've suffered from discrimination or abuse or abandonment. And I've just, I've been lucky to have been surrounded by good men from birth. So I'm a male loving feminist and I don't make sweeping judgments against men in general. I'm more of an old school first wave feminist in the vein of Mary Wollstonecraft in that I think the problems that feminism seeks to address are ultimately solved through virtue and cooperation on the part of both sexes, even if systemic issues make that really difficult. So 
if a conservative Christian were to ask me, are you a feminist? I would say yes, because in that context, which is the background that I'm from, I want to advocate for equality and respect for women within marriage and within the church, because some parts of evangelicalism have done women a grave disservice by preventing them from being able to teach and use their gifts, as well as making the assumption that all women should desire and should achieve marriage and children. And that is just not the life path that all women have or want. And there's also an ugly underbelly in evangelicalism, which will, you know, praise (laughs) (laughs) yes, that kind of praises smoking hot wives and Etsy moms and submissive biblical womanhood, whatever that means, while shaming single women for having cats and uh, treating them like they're the leftovers um, or making childless women feel like failures. And that makes me really angry. So, and I've also just seen too many imploding marriages amongst Christians and infidelity, emotional abuse, women being sidelined to feel like I could say, oh, the church is fine. You know, we don't need feminism because we do. We definitely do. But if a liberal Democrat, which probably describes most of our town, uh, were to ask, don't are you a feminist? We live. We're not <laughs> it's, a, it's a blue space, shall we say. If, if, if someone local were to ask, are you a feminist? I would probably say no, because I'm against abortion, except in extremely rare situations. I'm against porn. I think divorce is a tragedy. I believe marriage is meant for one man and one woman for life. I think being a mother is a beautiful gift and that children are not a burden. I love men and masculinity, and I don't think that trans women are women. So uh, plenty of progressive... She's getting us canceled! We're not even <laughs> five minutes into the show! I'm sorry. <laughs> it's over. It's over. It's George. over. Goodbye. <laughs> So plenty of progressive feminists would find me way too traditional to be in their club. So am I a feminist? Yes and no. Depends on who's asking, I guess. That was awesome. (laughs) And uh, Acton's not a real name. Who is Acton Bell the pen name for? I want to say I'm going to make... Do I want to make a mistake on air? One of the sisters. Does it violate my PhD? It was one of the Brontes, though, right? One of the Brontes, yes. I don't know which one. Okay. (laughs) So I think that's probably true for me, too. I mean, it yeah. does depend who you ask, because I think it's not a coincidence that that website raising the alarm about prevalence of adolescent females suddenly believing they're all boys. They called it fourth. The woman called it fourth wave now. And with that, she's by that. She's saying we need a fourth wave of feminism, a wave of feminism that that counters some of these things that they that certain people, including you, including me, find dangerous about so-called third wave feminism. And of course, third wave feminism comes from second wave feminism, which we're going to talk about a lot today. So I was raised, I was definitely raised in what we could call a second wave feminism awareness household. I was definitely had the, um, the awareness that expectations for women had been limited by being a woman as recently as my mother's own childhood. She would say that when she was growing up, it was just understood that a woman could aim to be four things professionally, a secretary, a nurse a teacher, or a social worker. In fact, my mother was a social worker, although my father was too. She knew she wanted to do something that involved her intellect more, but it was only when she was, you know, in her her early 30s that she was like, okay, I'm going to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And so she did that when I was a kid. She became a lawyer. And it was because she couldn't have done it before because you just didn't have the confidence. She didn't have the... It wasn't just this thing that you went off and did. And now it's like, we know that, you know, women... We don't have that problem anymore about, you know, not going to college. They outnumber men in college now and in, in many graduate, graduate fields as well. So that kind of sexism that I associate very strongly with second wave has disappeared. The sexism that the bigotry of low expectations, we could maybe call it in the sense that we don't even say when I grew up, I remember saying women doctor or women lawyer. Because oh, it was wow. like unusual. I mean, it was it was no, you had to. It was like a thing. You yeah. noted it, right? And of course, that's not the same as the workplace being everything being hunky dory in the workplace. I think right. getting the job and having the job are two different things, and we're also going to talk about that. Definitely, this idea that feminism was about not just counting women out because they were women. Mm-hmm. And um, but for me, I think it was personally. I never had this idea that the world that men and women were ever going to be the same. I didn't even have any male friends, I think, until my 30s. Really? Yeah. I just didn't... Wow. Well, I didn't have a lot of friends, period, for a lot of that. But anyway, <laughs> like, I knew that relating to men and relating to women was a... Was a I never felt like yes. they were just... I never had this idea that it was just people were people. I had a right. very... 
distinct sense that boys and girls are different. I had a camp counselor once who would throw a frisbee and we'd all try to catch it. And there was this situation where I, and he would be like, oh, extra points if you dive. And this kid, like, I mean, he's a kid now, right? Because he must have been, like, maybe in his late teens, maybe his early 20s. I mean, because he was a camp counselor and I was a kid. And uh, I wrote him a letter to say it was sexist <laughs> to assume that girls and boys, that girls could easily, could just as easily dive for his frisbee. Because, like, boobs. Because <laughs> boobs. <laughs> yes. Cause and that was, so that was the feminism that I grew up with. It's like, don't frame something as, don't exalt something without an awareness of, you know, the differences that might apply to that yes. exaltation. Like, you can't. You know, we're not all the same. Right. So you might want to... And this isn't something a guy's going to think of. No, I think he's never totally had that oblivious. experience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was like... I don't think that's... That's just... Yeah. I, that's a product of, okay, if we have this attitude that uh, girls and boys are the same, we're going to run... We're going to find ourselves in cul-de-sacs like, cul-de-sacs like that. Yes. Then in graduate school, I went through an angry woman, Catherine McKinnon phase. If you... She is one of these, she's a legal scholar, and she talked about how a lot, about these sort of core, what we could call, like, sort of core feminist issues, this anger about violence against women, about the deep current of misogyny that exists, and that remains in our culture, about, like, it was not very popular to, um, has it ever been popular to be against porn? I don't Mm. know. (laughs) But she was... I was never very convinced that the state or the law could ever kind of could ever really accomplish the liberation from male violence. I guess the phrase "the liberation of women from the patriarchy" that was the heart of a lot of this kind of sort of very activist, very angry feminism. I I was I remember taking a class on Italian feminism in grad school and thinking, and I just I think it was a moment of cognitive dissonance, really, because here we are, a bunch of women who had feminist convictions in the sense that we wanted rights for women, but we're all like, most of us were straight and it was just really clear that heterosexuality wasn't something and isn't something that most women are going to, are prepared to abandon in the, in the name of any kind of female solidarity. Right. It doesn't mean I'm not glad that women have legal rights. I mean, in especially in the Italian case, you know, we were dealing with a country that was very Catholic and, you know, you didn't have a right to divorce or to mm. abortion. Uh, or to lesbian marriage or any of those things. But at the same time, okay, so great. Those rights now exist in Italy, but the law clearly has limits. I don't really, for me, feminism isn't about the law. I mean, it is and it isn't, right? So, okay, Roe has fallen. So the law can change. So if you put your faith in the law to protect you, well, the law can change. Also, like, a lot of people didn't talk about this while Roe was in existence, but Roe did not guarantee abortion access. It, It completely varied by state. It was really not... You know, the being it being something being legal is not the same as it being accessible. Mm-hmm. And we saw that. I mean, the fact is, is that when Roe fell, a lot of the numbers, the places where abortion was now illegal, were places where it was almost unaccessible anyway. Right. If access is your issue, the law I don't think really helped. Even Roe didn't really help because it's a it's a cultural. I would say it was a cultural thing. Another example of the law having limits is pornography. I too am I'm a liberal, but I am against porn because I I don't see any redeeming aspects of it to society and I know that the people it, it always it's always worse for women. It's a classic example. It may be the classic. I mean prostitution would be the other one. So laws can change and then we can also see that, you know, Pornography in America is considered free speech. I mean, we used to have obscenity laws, which I think was crazy because that meant you couldn't say, like, the F word in a club, which which seems and probably is ridiculous. But if, if you're going to justify, you know, 12-year-olds being able to find porn on YouTube because it's free speech, <laughs> I, you've lost me there. Yeah. And so we can't even touch that issue in law here. It's We're not even... We don't even have the tools. Hmm. So that means there has to be other tools. Yeah. Um, and of course, being against porn is viewed as not feminist. So on Twitter, first moment of shameless self-promotion. <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> my, t- my handle is read my Substack, which people have told me, I can't believe that wasn't taken. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you got it. I got it. I call myself a harbinger feminist. Hmm, what's that? So there's a marketing term called harbinger customer, which they've, Apparently all the, you know, now that you everybody has their little, like, you know, customer card, they're able to do so much data analysis on what you buy. And it turns out that there is a, 
type of customer who has a pattern of buying new products that then are not popular. <laughs> and I what does that say about you? As soon as I heard that term, I was like, oh my God, that's me. Because I will go to the store and be like, this is the best product ever. And then six weeks later, gone. <laughs> Most recent thing that that happened with was the um, Trader Joe's 100% cacao chips. They're chocolate chips that have no sugar in them. Mm. They're so good. Anyway, I don't yeah. know about that. Gone. <laughs> you lost me. Good, 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 gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't expect to be popular. So I'm like, I'm an unpopular feminist because I, mm. as we're going to talk about, you know, I think that culture really matters. I feel like yeah. we've both experienced... I got married a lot later than you did. I've only mm-hmm. been married about eight years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is a large component to feeling like, oh yeah, there's nothing wrong with uh, marriage and these things when you when they go well for you. Yeah, I mean that that I think is just a natural human tendency to be. It's a natural bias to your own, but we're both sort of in a like you know happy happy man bubble. Right. Yeah, <laughs> a good man makes an enormous difference. In your perspective on Yes, and also just having yes. a... My parents are still married. Yes. Um, my parent, my aunt married her high school sweetheart. So my mother has known her brother-in-law since she was 13. Whoa. Which is kooky <laughs> to me. Because I don't, I don't talk to anyone that I knew when I was 13. Like, literally, <laughs> except my parents. My grandparents were married for like 70 years. Mm, yeah. Wow. So wow. there is this sense of normalcy about that. Mm-hmm. So, and that is, of course, not everyone's experience. I, we are all limited by experience. Right. So it's funny because I am totally a liberal, but I am probably just as canceled as you are in this environment. We're both we're, about to get canceled. We're, we're, we're pre-canceled. I come pre-canceled. <laughs> pre-canceled. Excellent. <laughs> okay. So what are we going to talk about? All right. Well, we'll be getting into Illich, but not yet. Let's, um, let's get into the two articles. We're not just going to read to you. We want you to be able to read. So where can we find, where can our readers find these things that we are reading or talking about? On our Substack, redfems.substack.com. And fingers crossed in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this. So first article, this piece appeared in the New York Times last month. It's by a Korean woman named Hwan Jung, who has a new book out. I think it was forthcoming at the time the article ran. It may be out. I have, we have not read it. Called Flowers of Fire, The Inside Story of South Korea's Feminist Movement and What It Means for Women's Rights Worldwide. So the title of the guest essay, as it appeared in the print edition, which I happened to see because I was on a plane and I had a paper, was How to End South Korea's Birth Strike? Question mark? Feminism. Birth Strike. That sounds ominous. <laughs> it's totally ominous. Yes. South Korean women are no longer having enough children to, well, keep South Korea in existence. Mm. So I'm going to read a quote from the article here. For three years in a row, the country has recorded the lowest fertility rate in the world. Whoa. With women of reproductive age having fewer than one child on average. Mm -hmm. It reached the dead cross. That's an anonymous term. That, That means when deaths outnumbered births in 2020, nearly a decade earlier than expected. Why are women opting to remain childless? That is the question, right? So there's an mm-hmm. argument about this, and it's taken on these sort of cultural stakes there. The recently, like, the article talks about how the recently elected president, Yoon Suk-yeol, actually got himself elected, arguing that it was feminism that is to blame. But the author of this piece, Young, argues that this is exactly backwards. Mm. That South Korea remains too patriarchal, violently chauvinistic, and puts extreme demands on mothers including discouraging them to work once they have a child. So women are choosing careers over marriage and motherhood. And so there's, and there's even like a fringe movement, a sort of extreme example of this with straight women who have taken the pledge to the four no's, no dating, no sex, no marriage, and no child rearing. Wow. So uh, things are not great. No. I, I remember from that, from that article, this particularly poignant image of daycare centers and kindergartens are being repurposed to be nursing homes because there literally are not enough children. There's not enough children at the local school to form a soccer team, you know? And it's like, oh my goodness, this is like that book or that movie Children of Men where sure. there are just no children. I'm like, what is happening? And that is obviously wow. in a society where you have no children, you soon don't have a society. Right. So right. what the heck? I mean... 
feminism, right? So the author of this piece is like, you know, we need to make it possible for women to bar- to balance family and career. We need to make it more appealing. But how can it be that? I mean, if you can, let's 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 stipulate that South Korea always had a very patriarchal, possibly mm-hmm. from our from our outsider viewpoint, you know, male chauvinistic culture. Birth rates were not always this low, right? So this is a modern this is a modern thing brought on by this sort of new, but we would we're probably going to argue false choice between having success in the economy yes. and mm-hmm. children, right? I think it's I think there's something pathological about a system that sets up women to have to choose: Do I want a, a family and to be married and have kids, or do I want a career? Like if you have to choose between two good things like that, you know, and with all this sort of acrimony and I can't say envy, but just like almost like hatred between the sexes, the Mm -hmm. way it was described, like the names that they would call one another, you know, ugly feminist pigs and, you know, feminism is a mental disorder, things like that. That's fighting words. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Was, was really shocking. And I, and I don't, um, you know, if, if that's, I don't know if if women feel stuck at home because they're they're mistreated at home or they're that's just they're, they're relegated to the home. Then I can see why they would want to opt out. It's weird. It's almost like a modern day um, form of like uh, like being a monk or a nun, like like celibacy almost, like pulling away, but not for the sake of like some transcendental higher good, like worshiping God. It's like for the economy, <laughs> like seriously, like to keep the job, you'd give up all of these things. But it's just sad that they've, yeah, that the home would be would be a place to escape. Well, shame on the men for making home a place they want to get away from. I don't, I don't know that opting out, obviously opting out is ultimately suicidal, right? For the society. So it can't be, <laughs> you can't call that good, right? Anything that sort of e- eats itself alive, right? Like so that it no longer exists can't be good. So yes, there is a definite dystopian tinge to that idea that's interesting that you mentioned monasticism because mm-hmm. the article about the four nose movement um, that is linked to in that article I went and read and this this they they talk about this woman who's a member of this movement and she her dream at the end of the article it says her dream is to open housing for a place for women who don't want to marry can live and I'm like uh, uh, we did that <laughs> that's called check a- check check we had that it's like monastery <laughs> so. So part of me feels mm. like this is there's a poverty of cultural options here, right? Yes. Being expressed. I mean, there's two things. One is, why is, and Illich has a lot to say about this, why do mm. women resent home life in the modern economy so much? Right. What is, what is that about? That's about something. But the other thing is about... Um, I mean, my, my one of the reasons I chose to remain childless was because... I don't believe if you are going to have a kid, you have to raise the kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you you got to do someone it. Someone has to raise the kid. Yes. <laughs> so if it's not you, you're basically signing someone else up to do that. Right. So you're outsourcing. You're outsourcing it. That's what we would call it now. I mm. mean, that's a term that right, that is very much a sort of illich. Illich would yes, be like, it's a keyword. Keywords. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Because, <laughs> sorry, everybody who has no idea what we're talking about. Um, because it implies that there's not enough of these things. That's right. It implies what scarcity of mothers, of well, maternal involvement, scarcity of everything, and yes. that is going to be like we're going to say that word so much you're going to be sick of us saying it. But it imply it implies that there is a shortage of this thing called attention or mm. care resources or so. There's a connection. There's clearly a connection between choosing not to have children because there's not enough of something that would make choosing having children easier. Um, and it could be a lot of things. It could be time. It could be respect. It could yes. be whatever. But how would... If we have a society where women... It's just as easy to work if you have children. That means, clearly to me, that there's only two ways to do that. One is we redefine what work looks like. Yes. And like you say, you can do it like you do. Like you do mm-hmm. your... Not you do your quote unquote non child related work in a way that allows you to still do the other thing. Yes. Yeah. Or we have and we have this we have this in some ways in our economy already, 
we have an economy that is whose sole product is childcare. Like, oh my goodness. We well, yeah, like daycare. Like yeah. we have a part of our economy that takes care of the kids, so people can go not take care of their own kids. They can right. Which is, I mean, I was, I am like that kid. I was like after school care latchkey kid. I'm that kid. <laughs> And I have no resentment for my mother wanting to have a career. Like, I feel like that's fine. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's not, it doesn't really scale. Like, to do that. My mother, and my mother was home with me for my first, like, three years. Like, I I joke that she gave me the best gift that I can't remember. Because, (laughs) like, she gets no credit. Because I don't remember any of that. Right. But until I was from birth to, you know, when I was eligible for, like, potty trained daycare. Although she totally lied about that. That's a different story. (laughs) A mom's got to do what a mom's got to do. Exactly. But like, so the, you know, I wasn't in, I mean, but now it's just like, you know, you can put an infant in daycare at like six months. Not even sometimes. Yeah. Six weeks. Eight weeks. Oh man. But I mean, at that point, like a mother's body is like still like in symbiosis with the baby. You know, that's to, to be separate like that for hours upon hours upon hours. I just can't. And I, and I have a friend who um, recently had a kid, and she talks about how she's she's home she's home all the time. Obviously, they they're kind of um, pulled away in upstate New York, um, you know, keeping themselves to themselves, mm-hmm. and and because they were all working remotely, so it wasn't really like a big change. But she notices that her da- her young daughter has has totally different capacities and attitudes at different times in the day. Huh. So she's she's describing what we call, for, especially with like people with dementia, like sundowning. She says her daughter will sundown, like her her the hours that she's most awake is yes. the morning. Yes. And so she talks about imagine what it would be like if you if you were dropping your kid off at your infant off at daycare, the only hours you saw your kid really you spent was when they were at their worst. Yeah. It's so like the it, witching hour, like dinner time. Exactly. It's like that's well, like falling apart. I had yes. colic. I cried oh. from five to eight every night for three months. It basically so it's not just about the time and a woman working away from her kid. It's about your entire experience of being a parent is is changed by that because you're not having the same experience of your kid. Yeah, there's this embodied connection. There's all this juice, you know. I mean, and the hormones that like flow between mother and baby, and and being able to nurse rather than pump, and all of that. It's very, it's you know, it's kind of indescribable, and it is kind of magical. I don't know. I I feel and check my privilege again. I feel really grateful that I was in an economic situation where I was able to stay home with my kids and do that. And I mean, it does come with the sort of the hair raising. I'm going crazy, you know. Like it's also very hard. Yeah, no, my mother described it as being very isolating to be alone with a baby because, like, you can't talk to a baby. Right. I mean, you can talk to the baby, but the (laughs) baby can't, you know, answer something interesting back. I mean, but it's isolating because of the way our societies are structured now that we're not living with, you know, grandmother and aunties and sisters and and everybody around who can pass the baby off to. We're not in this place where, like, right next door or everyone is sort of engaging in this whole thing. I mean, the, the romanticization of this is like going to the water to get the, going to the well to get the water. Right. You meet all your friends. <laughs> Chatting with the ladies, yeah. Yeah. And, and we are very, very far apart from that. Yeah. But evolutionarily, mentally, we yeah. are not very far away from that. That's right. Hmm. So I, so this, as a sort of like harbinger feminist, I was like, equalizing the workplace is not going to solve this problem. No. My gut reaction was, this is backwards. Like, feminism... Yes, make it possible. Like, yes, uh, it's, it sounds really gross in the way that women are sort of treated as second-class citizens in that culture. Yes. Um, that does sound gross. But even my own experience in the American workplace, which is nowhere near that kind of chauvinistic, has not necessarily been... I, I think that the idea of fitting women into the workplace as it was as it existed already... I mean, I don't think we give enough credit to the idea that workplace used to be a man's domain. Uh huh. It still is, even though lots of women are in it. Yeah, exactly. We just said women and men are the same. Put the women in there. That's right. Party time. That's right. And that is like no. If we're gonna have men and women in the workplace, burn the whole thing down and start over. Exactly. Oh, high five. Yes. Because <laughs> I don't think like just accommodating or like pretending or like I don't I don't think the way that is is it's great that anti harassment laws and all that stuff exists. But I don't think it's sufficient. I think it's looking at the problem upside down. I think, um, and I also just don't think that um, 
I mean, someone has to raise your kids. It's either yeah. the person who has them or it's someone who's paid to do so. And I'm just very skeptical. As liberal and bleeding heart liberal as I am, I don't see how the state can do that better. I don't see that. I don't see mm-hmm. that as like, I don't know. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm turning into such a conservative in my old age. It's really sad. I'm a liberal <laughs> conservative. I don't know what I am. I'm politically homeless. I feel you. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I just think the way that people, that article, so my, okay, main takeaway for me, that article was like, it was just astonishing to me that there are just still people who think that after 40 years of third wave feminism, that there's something more we can do to tinker with the system of people in the workplace that's going to fix that. Right. Right. It's, it seemed like it was saying, just throw, throw more feminism at it and it'll get fixed, which to me feels like how people say about education, like just throw more money at it and then it'll be fixed. You're like... No, no, there's some fundamental flaw and assumption at the core of it that is not working. And just more and more of the same will not fix that. So, yeah, I think I think one of my fundamental takeaways from it is that when when men and women can't get along, what that looks like as a symptom is no babies. Ah, yeah. You know, like on like on that broad level, I'm not talking about on an individual level, but just you know, <laughs> they're not doing it. They don't want to do it. And they, and then there's also, there's no, like, there's no fruitfulness from it. You know, it's sort of, it's dying on the vine when men and women can't find a way to be together in their difference. They can't find a way to be cooperation, not competition. Yes. And this is not this sense that there isn't something that you're surrendering. Like I can't have this thing that this man has if I have a kid. Hmm. I mean, that seems to be like, I don't want these things that are associated with, with the child. That's whatever, if that's motherhood, if that's marriage, that just seems like the idea that feminism is wanting, if feminism in that context is about getting women to behave like men, then more of it will never bring back having children. Exactly. Exactly. To the second article. Let's segue into our next article. This is by... My internet girl crush, <laughs> Mary Harrington. Shout out to Mary Harrington. She's Woo-hoo! wonderful. She's a writer for the website Unheard, and her piece is a question. Is there hope for marriage on big romance and other myths of the modern age? I don't think I ever believed in, in big romance, but um, so what is uh, what is Mary defined marriage as? I mean, it's obviously my marriage is not my parents' marriage, and it's not my grandparents' marriage either. Yeah, it's changed a lot. Um, So Mary describes what we call a traditional marriage, the sort of conception of, you know, the angel by the hearth, the wife and the mother presiding over the home as actually a relatively new byproduct of industrialization. That, That mode granted women this sort of boon of companionship and intimacy, which is what she calls big romance, but it simultaneously made women more economically dependent on their husbands. So yeah, you get to marry your soulmate, but now you're much more likely to need him financially than he is to need you, which introduces this power imbalance and a hierarchy that wasn't present in the pre-industrial world of subsistence living. Oh, we're getting so close to the illich. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Harrington goes on to just say that, that big romance is starting to be liquidated because of the effects of new technologies like the pill and the internet that make it possible for women to be functionally interchangeable with men in the workplace and in the home. She's so, definitely read Illish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to oh, yeah. say. <laughs> oh, for sure. So, so, you know, this companionate marriage that we're more familiar with is now being replaced by what Harrington calls the self-expressive marriage, which no longer has any place for duty and dependency, whether that's mutual or one-sided, but is really about individual fulfillment and empowerment. But Harrington sees that the self-expressive marriage is just, it's inherently unstable. You know, there's no center of gravity. It's going to, it's falling apart. And so she's calling for us to rethink marriage again. She says, but this cannot just be a case of stuffing women back into some imaginary traditional box or seeking the ultimate victory of one sex over the other. Instead, we have to revise again what we understand marriage to mean. Some conservatives suggest that the way we fix this is by returning to the 20th century understanding of marriage and with it somehow to the traditional relationship between men and women. The weakness of such solutions is not that they are unworkable or even that they are traditional. It is that they are not traditional enough. Today, there is little prospect of reviving the industrial era housewife as the principal template for sex roles, nor is there need. 
Under 21st century conditions, the sharp split between home and work that drove the emergence of such roles is blurring again, and the blurring of that divide in turn opens up new possibilities, hinting at a way of viewing lifelong solidarity between the sexes that owes more to the 1450s than the 1950s. It does so by bringing work back into the home, and in the process ramping up the kind of interdependence that can underpin long-term pragmatic solidarity. That is a genius quote. And she gets so much crap on the internet for being conservative. But, but she's not, she's like you. Yeah, she's she's, like- <laughs> we're all politically homeless now. So if the anti-feminist movement in South Korea, the patriarchal males are like, oh, we need traditional marriage, enough of these feminism, Herring is like, no, we can't go back to the 1950s. Right. So we've got, I think we've safe to say that we've got two models that you and I think are both failures. So we've got the... Mm-hmm. Just pretend it's a 1950s model. Right. Put women back in the home. And we've got the feminist, just equalize the workplace model, the second wave feminist model of just equalize, and maybe even some of the third wave, like sex work is real work, that kind of like. But you and me are, and we've gotten this, I think, from even Illich, this idea Mm -hmm. that there is a peel back, all of this traditional, so this this idea Mm -hmm. of the dependent, the big romance where the, the, the husband goes and earns the money and is devoted enough to bring it back to his wife who rules the, you know, and, and this, this can go for the 1950s, but even maybe the 1850s, yeah. you know, the idea that it's the devotion that equalizes that, that yes. fundamental sort of dependency <laughs> relationship. And of course now if you can, if the woman can get a job, she doesn't need the man to have the job. So there's right. really no motive except maybe like you make me feel good to stay married right right but harrington is like well that seemingly is not working because look at divorce rates yes yeah and it's interesting because i'm like when i read how she describes you know big romance and the sort of this you know the man leaves the house and the woman's home and she's dependent on him like that's the mode in which i grew up in and that like i was kind of raised in and like the milieu of like conservative christianity kind of did that and like i saw how if you have a good man it is functional. Like, it, it can work when there's virtue and genuine love present. And so I understand why conservatives would be like, let's go back to that. That's you know, the good old days. Like, I get it. Because it can work for some people. But but it isn't really... It, is, it doesn't scale very well. And then, and then yeah, when you have the situation where, where, women, where women then leave the house, too, and are going out, then it, the, whole, the whole thing shifts. And it's falling apart. There's a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about next week that I've already started looking into. There is this great sense that um, not being dependent on a man is essential to a, to liberating women, but the yeah. but which in, depending on how much or that doesn't. I mean, obviously, to not have to marry to have a living is is a good thing. Uh-huh. But the thing is, what is is the only way to do that? Uh, to, to, to basically then your, your boss is your, I mean, I like to talk about how, like, and if there's no, if, if, if single women, if there's no fathers involved in raising children, then the substitute for the father is essentially the state. I mean, in the sense that if you can't earn, you know, if you can't earn the money Mm -hmm. to support yourself and your child, then, you know, and if the, if the old days was the, that was the father's job to provide for the family. Right. Now the new version of that, oh, well the state just pays you. And again, right. not like I'm against single motherhood, but at scale, it doesn't work. The state is never right a substitute. I mean, there's things that the state is good at substituting for. Like you could say justice, like instead of going and killing someone yeah. who wrongs you, the state is, is going to step in and provide that justice for you. Not revenge, but mm-hmm. this other thing that we've given up. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a trade-off thing, right? And it's the trade-off between not having families who care about the infant, raise the infant, versus just money or something. Feminists seem committed that it is better just to get your money not from a man, but from a company or from the state. And I feel, I'm very mm-hmm. suspicious of that, because I, I believe in a welfare state, but I don't feel like a welfare state is a culture. That's a great point, yes. <laughs> it's not, I don't feel, yeah. I'm just not convinced. Yeah. We both think that this situation of the substitution for some sort of dependency care network is missing. But it, we, and we both agree it used to be there. Harrington talks about the 1450s. Mm-hmm. So, um, so should we talk about Illich now? Yeah. Should we yeah, do that? Yeah, let's segue in. So, um, 
Yeah, Illich can kind of tell us, like, what the hell happened? <laughs> How did we get here? <laughs> so, one of you. Certainly, his, he has a version of events, which you are all free to disagree with, but okay. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to talk about the first chapter of a book that is a collection of essays called Gender. We're going to talk about chapter one, which is called Sexism and Economic Growth. So, Ivan Illich was born in September of 1926, and he died in December of 2002. He was an Austrian Roman Catholic priest. He actually grew up sort of all over the place. He was a polyglot. He spoke, he spoke like seven languages, maybe more. Whoa. But he was originally from Austria. He was a theologian, a philosopher, a social critic. He also taught. He's probably best known for his book from 1971 called Deschooling Society, which was a, a critique about education as an institution. I mean, he was a pretty anti-institutionalist guy <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> Um, despite being part of like what we could call one of the most like <laughs> the oldest, oldest living institution, yeah, the church, <laughs> the Catholic Church. He spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico, and Mexico. I think we could safely call him an anti-modernist in many ways. Yeah, he believed that industrialization, technology, and even the imposition of the ideas in the Gospels as formal law was destroying what he thought of as successful subsistence cultures. We think of subsistence as like, oh, you poor thing, you're poor, but that's. Yeah. Not what you think. We have to sort of blank that for your mind, audience. <laughs> so this collection of essays that was published as Gender came out of lectures that he was invited to give at UC Berkeley in 1980 and 1981 in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies. I think it was that. I think it was probably already Gender Studies at that time. Mm. Let's just say that feminists did not appreciate his viewpoint. You might say he got canceled. And in fact, the book kind of destroyed his reputation on the left because a lot of the things he was doing were not just saying, oh, you women, you're never going to get economic equality, blah, blah, blah. A lot of his ideas just in in a broader sense relate to this. And in fact, this book was the last of his to appear from a major publisher. So here's, it's all there in the opening lines of, of the first essay of this of this collection. So industrial society creates two myths, one about the sexual ancestry of this society and the other about its movement towards equality. Both myths are unmasked as lies of humans, which he italicizes, who belong to the, quote, second sex. Mm. So the second sex, that ring any bells? Simone de Beauvoir. Yes, uh, that's um, the title of her book from 1949. The famous line that it begins with is, one is not born a woman, one becomes one. Mm-mm. There's a whole host of things we can unpack in there. But basically, Illich is saying that second wave feminists the critique at the heart of it is based on an idea that is not historically true. Hmm. Because what what that, you know, the second sex is this idea that says, like, women have always been oppressed. Gender is the form of that oppression. Sex is the basis of that, of that oppression. So he's saying, no, that's crap, because sex didn't always exist. And he's saying, by the way, this new state of sex-based oppression cannot be fixed. It is irremediable. Mm, that's dark. It's like super dark. They were pissed. <laughs> um, so if society didn't have this constant, this con- so he's, when he italicizes humans there, mm. he's saying human is what gives us the idea of if you start from a human, you can say this human has this sex and this human has this other sex. And that's where you get male and female. And we just think that's like normal. That's biological. Mm hmm. But Illich says instead, he says, that's modern. What we used to have was something called gender. I bet everybody's thoroughly confused. Because when he says gender, yeah. you can't think of what we think it means and all the disagreements about it. You have to just, like, erase your mind. Read us the second quote. What does Illich mean when he says gender? I use gender, then, in a new way to designate a duality that in the past was too obvious even to be named and is so far removed from us today that it is often confused with sex. So, what the heck does that mean? Duality. So this is a meaning, something that exists in its natural state as two parts. It's assumed throughout the whole Bible of, like, heaven and earth, you know, and man and woman, and the sort of, the whole dynamic of the Bible is this sort of, it's like the union of heaven and earth being this fruitful thing, you know, and, and the beautiful. Yes, it's yin and yang. It's it is that thing that's it's it's metaphorical, symbolic, poetic, and is so obvious that it went without saying. You know, it was something people lived in. It was not 
you know, it was not scientific at all. It was not, that's not how it was viewed at all. If you do a lot of feminism, maybe the term to oppose duality here would be a binary. Ah. Right. So you know how critical mm-hmm. theory is all about disrupting the binary. So mm-hmm. duality is the opposite of a binary because a, bin- a duality can never, it's a, a, bi- a duality doesn't have a hierarchical relationship. Right. It has an asymmetrical relationship. And it doesn't, so there isn't like a, one is oppressor, one is oppressed. And we are so used to that language and that thinking. So, so gender is a state of affairs that has a way of acknowledging difference that has no relationship to the way that we think differences does always indicate some sort of hierarchy. Right. Or yeah. Competition. Competition. Right. They're not polarized in a, you know, this side versus that side. That's not at all what's happening. It's like, there's two fundamentally different I don't even, I guess equal, but like there's two fundamentally different ways of being in the world and they're kind of incommensurable with one another. They're not interchangeable and they're both, they both are sort of holistic in their own right, but together they sort of form the whole world. Yes. You know, cause you know, the Genesis created them male and female, mm-hmm. meaning like they were created as distinct, but they were created together. Right. As so together but oneness. distinct. Yes. As unity and, and diversity. Or, yeah, unity and multiplicity together. So, okay, so here's the quote three. So what, this is what, this is a, that's a little deeper of what he means. I have adopted this term, that is gender, to designate a distinction in behavior, a distinction universal in vernacular cultures. It distinguishes places, times, tools, tasks, forms of speech, gestures, and perceptions that are associated with men from those associated with women. This association constitutes social gender because it is specific to a time and place. I call it vernacular gender because this set of associations is as peculiar to a traditional people in Latin agains, that's the root of the word in English gender, mm-hmm. as is their vernacular speech. So this so the feminists out there who are obviously have already stopped listening, but to the ones who are still there, this just sounds like, oh, stereotypes, men have to do something, women have to do something, everybody has to, you know, it sounds like conformity. Mm. But it's not, I don't think, I don't read not it like all. that. No, because because what he goes on to describe later in the book is that the sense of, of gender, it is, it's not universalized. So you could have like some little hamlet in, in you know, 14th century France or something, and the way that you know, that their women and their men lived would be distinct and different from, you know, how over in the next valley, how that community had their men and their women be. And so it, like there were, there was always this, you know, juicy and delicious difference between men and women in all of the different little local places. But if you compared one local place to another, they were different, like languages, like dialects, you know, like like food, like music, right? Like there's not some sort of like this big box universal system that applies to all men everywhere and all women everywhere. It was always our men, our women. And so it's it, it's not stereotypical because it's not universalized. And yet the dis, this, the distinction is always maintained. My classic story about that is... Um, he talks about this book in one point in, what was it like, I guess we could say 18th century France, that if you didn't have a woman in your life, you couldn't wash your clothes or mend your yes. clothes. Yeah. He says you could like smell a bachelor a mile off begin, you know, cause he would just, he would stink and he like, he couldn't like, yeah, all his clothes would have holes and he'd be falling to pieces because he had no woman to care for him because he literally couldn't. Because those, those things, things were not, you, yeah. and, I, and I was ex- I was trying to explain the power of what we could call when I use like we're going to say gender in the Illich sense, mm. this sort of deep seated sense of you know, of realms of realms of um, subsistence living. So like laundry or food or farming or whatever. I was trying to explain this to a friend of mine to be like how powerful gender used to be, and she's like, I don't. And I was like, can you imagine what it would be like to like just to live outside this would mean that you were deprived of things like laundry. Right. And, and she, and she says to me, I don't want to do my husband's laundry. And I was like, Oh my God, you, you're this not is getting so it. hard to explain. <laughs> like this is a right. fail. Right. Because <laughs> that is the attitude of like, well, everyone can do everything. So right. why should I do something for someone? It, it, that's but right. see, that's the level at, at which most people think when they, when they hear, uh, places, times, tools, tasks, forms of speech. 
that have that one set of those belongs to women and w- women and one set belongs to men. They think, why should I do a man's laundry? Right. And it's really yeah. hard to get down or like, there. Or like, why are they keeping me away from their tools? I want to use the I want to use the man's tools. Like, why can't you know? There's this sort yes. of competitive. It's envy, right? Like, it's an envy that seems to only go one way. It's the women envying the men, which is this assumption that the, that the whatever it is that the women have is not really worth anything. And I think that, like, that Bachelor example, you know, demonstrates the the older world, men and women mutually depended on each other. That the men needed the women just as much as the women needed the men. Yes. And so with industrialization, with the men going out and then the women becoming dependent, the men didn't need them anymore. To to quite the same degree. Well, maybe they they needed them, but the things that the women were portrayed as doing were somehow had somehow been diminished yes by the very so there's two things going on here one is the division of what we might call labor although again like subsistence living is not labor it's the effect of illich this is what illich talks about right he is the effect of this kind of replacement you know labor for for money in a society where your goods were where you were you were buying most of the things you were living with like you were dependent on consumption mm-hmm. that is a represents a fundamental change that somehow you know always left women with the short end of the stick so yes. so we don't we have this like it's really hard to access this idea of gender but i think the definition if we contrast it with the definition of sex it might make more sense cuz so can okay. you read um quote number 4 for us yeah By sex, I mean the result of a polarization in those common characteristics that, starting with the last 18th century, are attributed to all human beings. Unlike vernacular gender, which always reflects an association between a dual, local, material culture and the men and women who live under its rule, social sex is, small c, Catholic. It polarizes the human labor force, libido, character, or intelligence, and is the result of a diagnosis, in Greek discrimination, of deviations from the abstract genderless norm of the human. Sex can be discussed in the unambiguous language of science. Gender bespeaks a complementarity that is enigmatic and asymmetrical. Only metaphor can reach for it. So that is a beautiful quote, and Mm. it bears some thinking about... So this idea that humans were all sort of cut from the same cloth mm-hmm. and we just have these differences. The way to think about this might be like those personality tests mm-hmm. where like we're all human, but women tend to be more agreeable than men. Women tend to be more neurotic. This is, of course, in the aggregate than men. Right. But that whole paradigm is assuming that we're all human and uh-huh. then we just have an, on a slider. Just have, right. Just give, you know, we have <laughs> slide this, slide that. It's like... Just a photo filter, like, you know, we're just sort of, we're all, we all start from the same ingredients. We just have more or less of them. Or like variations on a theme. Yes. Like fundamentally same, like, or like this sort of androgynous thing until you add, add or subtract little features here and there. Yes. Like, no, that's weird. That's a new way to It's modern, yes. It's modern, yeah. But of course, like, there, this is, this is why second wave feminism hits this wall, because in order to gain access to things like suffrage or the workplace it requires i mean if 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 women if men believe that you know math was bad for women because they have uteruses then you gotta like downplay some of those things you have to say like um this this i this understanding this what illich calls the loss of gender this genderless framework actually in some senses forwards those uh that mission to say oh we're not fundamentally different we can do math. But especially right. here, it's worth noting, what's that guy's name? Carl Truman, is it? I want to say who just yeah. wrote that book. Yep. Uh, he talks a lot about how this modern, so this idea that a human being is just a sort of like a, it's it's like how do you, it's like choosing your character in a video game. Yes. Right? You start with some sort of <laughs> basic framework and then you yes. add a little more aggression, a little more libido, a little less honesty, whatever, a little more or less intelligence. It's this idea that expressive individualism takes its root from. This idea that we are all Mm -hmm. fundamentally, all human beings are sort of, you know, it's where we get the concept of human rights. Mm -hmm. 
you can't have human rights if you under if you come at it from this duality of like there's no concept of everybody being in the same bucket right with 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 illicit gender yeah like you so there are no human rights and and that's a weird thing to say because we have this attitude that um, well, that's bogus. Like, you can't have, wait, we're, you're against human rights. <laughs> right. it, it sounds very sort of inflammatory. Mm-hmm. But what it means is it's just this, this basic, a fundamental assumption that most modern people have. Even, I would say, conservatives on mm-hmm. some level. Yeah. Um, but especially liberals, that there's this sort of sameness at the bottom. We're all just right. human. And that's right. been used mm-hmm. in a lot of... And rightfully so. This has been used in a lot of civil rights language. Right. It has a practical meaning and it's played a part in some really good changes. Right. So it's not like we're saying, like, get rid of that. That's terrible. Right. Right. But there is a sort of a, like a useful fiction element to it because it's kind of like saying, saying human is kind of like saying, think of a generic hand, not a right hand or a left hand. Ah, just that's hand. a great example. You're like, I, I, well, well, two thumbs, no thumb. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> right. Like the hands come in right or left. Like... I mean, you can say hand, but, you know, you right. really kind of assume probably your dominant hand. You know, like, they, they really, it's, it's right and left hand, you know. And so, it, I think gender is really what But Illich says that. He means, yeah, when you say men and women, when you say gender, you say a culture that has both. And it yes. cannot be other than that. Right. Let's look at the linchpin of Illich's critique, which is the connection between capitalism and sex distinction. Okay, so here's quote number five. I oppose the regime of scarcity to the reign of gender. I argue that the loss of vernacular gender is the decisive condition for the rise of capitalism and a lifestyle that depends on industrially produced commodities. Scarcity is his word for industrial capitalism. Okay. I think the best way to think of it is gender is a relationship between men and women, but it also is constitutive of a way of producing the things for life. Yes. It has the characteristic of not having the effect that industrialization, that commodity, the commodity-based cultures have, or economies have, which is that idea of... if Because if you're dependent on a product, it automatically means that you can run out of it. So uh. a, a gender-based subsistence living world, you cannot run out of something like care or... Um, Food. I mean, obviously, you can. There can be a famine, and everybody mm-hmm. can die. But it's not the same as like I can't buy enough blah because of whatever. Right. The economics of capitalism is so dependent on supply and demand and growth. Yes. Right. And so, growth in a gender regime is sort of the reign of gender. It's like it's all just sort of like baked in. It just works. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about that in the book. We don't have time mm-hmm. to go really into how that is. Once it's all about goods and services. There's, there's always the chance that there's never enough. Plus, and then so the effect of that on when gender goes away, not only do you lose that enoughness, you get this idea that the labor force exists, consists of humans who are interchangeable. Right, like parts of a machine. Yes. Yep. So you get a unisex culture is what he calls this. Here it's quote number six. The subject on which economic theory is based is just such a genderless human. Then, with scarcity accepted, the unisex postulate spreads. Every modern institution, from school to family and from union to courtroom, incorporates this assumption of scarcity, thereby dispersing its constitutive unisex postulate throughout the society. For example, men and women have always grown up. Now they need education to do so. Thus, education turns into the name for learning to live under an assumption of scarcity. It assumes the scarcity of a genderless value. It teaches that he or she who experiences its process process is primarily a human being in need of genderless education. Economic institutions then are based on the assumption of scarcity in genderless values, equally desirable or necessary for competing neuters belonging to two biological sexes. Oof, that line. Competing neuters. Yes. (laughs) So they're they're linked for him, right? It's it's both that there is they're linked for him. It's the economic competition goes hand in hand with the neuter, with the loss of gender, with this idea of like a neutered human being. So why do you think the feminists are mad at him? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a completely different way of of viewing what humans are, what they're like. It, I mean, that isn't that what that was what second fem, second wave feminism said. It shouldn't matter whether you are a man or a woman. You should have you should be able to have an equal outcome in the economy. And Illich talks a lot about in the second mm-hmm. chapter, which is called Economic Sex, how this is not this has not been made manifest. And he's writing right. in the nineteen eighties, right? But he's already said in the nineteen eighties, this is yeah. hopeless, women. Yeah, yeah, because he's saying that that sexism isn't a bug of society; it's a feature. So if we're going to have society set up the way it is with capitalism, the way it is this, the kind of sexism that, you know, that feminism is against, it will always be here. We can't just try to have, try to have more feminism to make it go away. It's like the whole system is geared to create, to create South Korea (laughs) doing what it's doing, right? Like that's like the natural sad outcome of the sort of competitive, you know, acrimonious dynamic between the sexes. Right. He says, he says, uh, the pursuit of a non-sexist economy is absurd as a sexist one is abhorrent. Relentlessly economic institutions transform the two culturally embedded genders into something new, into economic neuters distinguished by nothing more than their disembodied sex. Economic discrimination against women cannot exist without the abolition of gender and the social construction of sex. So he's saying basically this yeah it's it's not a bug it's a feature why do we like this why do we find this informative um how and how can we defend him maybe against this notion of gender is just putting women back in the kitchen yeah i i definitely don't think he's trying to put women back in the kitchen i think he's trying to in a sense give the history of the kitchen <laughs> like the kitchen today is not the kitchen of yore they're completely different. Right. And so what it's like to be a woman in the kitchen, you know, centuries ago versus a woman in the kitchen now, it's a totally different experience, not necessarily because women have changed, but because the whole setting and the meaning of kitchen or home or like, because we don't have productive households anymore. We have consuming households. Yes. And that, that changes, it changes everything to be the, the queen of the place of consumption is not the same thing as being like, you know, as presiding over this productive land and home in which you're cooperating with your husband. Very well said. So history of the kitchen. That's what. I right. And in fact, if you, if you've heard of the term shadow work, mm. he made up that term with, he had some help, but he wrote a book, in fact, on it, and he talks about shadow work a lot, and that that's shadow work is what you do to a commodity you purchase to make it useful, and so that process. If we think of the '50s housewives, yes, you know, going to the store and making the food, that was that is a process that largely consists of shadow work in the sense that you start with things that are um, these consumables, and you go from there. So not only do you have the obligation to surrender, someone has to surrender their labor for wage. Mm-hmm. then you have to make the things that you buy with that money useful to live. So right. it's two steps removed from yes. subsistence culture. And that shadow work does not require the same skill or have the same status as what, you know, women were doing, you know, in the older kitchens, right? Like it's unisex work is what he says. Like anybody could do it. And it made me think of this example. I, I had heard that um, this is probably the, the 50s era thing of like, oh, buy a box of cake mix, you know, just add water, you know, and then women can like make their cake, right? That, that women weren't buying that because they felt guilty about how easy it was, right? Like, because there's a sense of like, this just is a product. I, I don't want to show this cake to my husband. I didn't even work for it. And so the marketers were smart and they tapped into this sort of shame that women had about uh, shadow work being too easy. And they're like, well, add an egg, you know, egg plus water. And then it tricked the women into feeling like I'm really doing something now, you know? And so then they would buy them because it was just add an egg. But, but I feel it's sort of like a sad, like example of like industrial capitalism got us again, you know, but it has, it has this, this feeling of like, we, we know, like there was a reason why Betty Friedan wrote the feminine mystique and why women were bored and miserable in the 1950s kitchen and didn't know, you know, and were straightening the corners of the towels because they had nothing else to do. Right. Like that's legit, that feeling. And it's because of shadow work. It's not because the home, you know, the home is inherently a bad place or being a wife or a mother is bad or that everybody should go out to work. So to come back to the article in uh, the South Korean birth strike article, it's it's about scarcity, right? The government is concerned about a scarcity of people. Yes. And it's worth noting that it was the state itself that originally encouraged lowering the birth rate because they wanted to 
economic numbers, right? So if you you can improve per capita wealth uh, by having fewer heads, mm. right? So as late as the 1960s in South Korea, women had six children on average. Whoa! So it was the state that um, you know pursuing economic development goals carried out an aggressive population control campaign. And so in 20 years, women were having fewer than the 2.1 on average children needed for replenishment. So if women aren't having kids because they feel the lack of resources, time, money, respect, Mm. you know, Illich would say that no amount of economic tinkering can solve a problem that is baked into a regime of scarcity. Yes. That's the trick, right? That's right. He would say that the only way to reduce sexism, which we call, I think at one point, a new form of degradation under the regime of scarcity. I like that. (laughs) Would be to, in fact, disengage from the goods and services-based economy. So if you're, if you're trying to have enough means that you're not going to have, you're not going to have kids. Because if it's like scarcity, that those two things don't, don't mesh. Uh, degrowth would be then. And he's talking about degrowth in the 80s, which is kind of like prescient because there's a big move, move about that. Yes. Because he believes that industrial capitalism produces a consumption-dependent producer who isn't necessarily sexist. Hmm. So... So so why is so in this context Harrington is important because yes. she's saying she's saying we can look at marriage a different way. Yeah, and she, you know, interviews various people for her article where they're describing what their home life is like. And I was reading I was like, "Oh my gosh, I think this is my life." Like, right. you know, the husband works from home, you know, kind of like Zoom class type of thing and and the wife is at home with kids and she's got like some little side thing on the side, but she's also, she enjoys like making stuff out of her home and she doesn't feel, she doesn't experience being in her home as shadow work. Like, even though it might kind of look like the same thing, it might even be the same exact like motions that she's doing. The women that she interviews do not feel oppressed, burdened, stifled by it. They have the sense of agency partly because the husband is home and the children are there and like everyone is kind of pitching in it ha- it's like it's turned from a site of consumption into a site of productivity and conviviality and it has a center of gravity to it you know kind of gathered around the table like it's a different kind of it's a different kind of home yes conviviality um Illich also wrote a book tools for conviviality he was big on that and that's mm-hmm. a big it's a really old idea conviviality probably due for a reboot mm-hmm. um so what are we doing next week Housekeeping. I mean, <laughs> podcast housekeeping. <laughs> not shadow work housekeeping. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I cannot remember the name of it, but I know it involves my four-setter. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, I think I called it something glib like when the call is coming from inside the house. Yes. Like in a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the enemy within. We're going to talk about disagreements, a recent disagreement in uh, feminism. All right. Red Femmes. Red Femmes. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Bye, Acton. Bye, George.